Chapter 16, The Greatest Riches As we come to the end of our wonderful journey, how can we tie together the many concepts we have discussed up to this point, such as stewardship, giving, and saving? Paul might have done that for us when he talked about money in 2 Corinthians 8.15. As it is written, He who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. This is a quote from Exodus 16.18 about the manna the Israelites collected each morning during their time in the wilderness. Manna and money. What do manna and money have to do with each other? Quite a bit, actually. The Israelites were to each take one omer, Exodus 16.16, which is a tithe. An omer is one-tenth of an ephah, Exodus 16.36. The term translated one-tenth is the Hebrew word also translated tithe. Manna serves as a fascinating and fitting illustration of money in that it did many of the things for Israel that money does for us. And what Israel was and wasn't supposed to do with manna resembles what we are and aren't supposed to do with money. Providing and Testing Exodus 16.4 records that the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. God sent the manna to provide for the Israelites and test them, just like God uses money to provide for us and test us. Avoiding Greediness and Wastefulness The Israelites needed manna like we need money, but they had to avoid being greedy like we must avoid being greedy. The people accused God of bringing them into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Exodus 16.2 This helps us understand how difficult it was for the people of Israel to take only what they needed. Not surprisingly, some didn't listen and couldn't eat all of what they collected. Verses 19 and 20 record what happened. Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. They were supposed to avoid wasting the manna, like we are supposed to avoid wasting money. If they kept too much for themselves versus leaving it for others, there were problems. Similarly, if we keep too much money for ourselves versus giving it to others, there are problems for us too. The manna began to decay and stink, and figuratively speaking, money we shouldn't have begins to decay and stink. Learning to Save Exodus 16, 22-24 tells us what would happen when the Israelites handled the manna correctly. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each, and when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. The manna taught the Israelites to save. They gathered twice as much on the sixth day, so they wouldn't have to gather any on the Sabbath. If they handled the manna the right way, striking the balance between saving and hoarding, they had what they needed and there were no problems. 
it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Similarly, if we handle money the right way, striking the balance between saving and hoarding, we will have what we need and there won't be any problems. Enforced differently. We see one important difference between manna and money as we contrast the Old and New Covenants. In the wilderness, under the Old Covenant, equality was miraculously enforced. Everyone ended up with the same amount, one omer, regardless of how much they gathered. In the church, under the New Covenant, people are cared for not because it is enforced, but because God burdens his people to give, as we discussed in the previous chapters, willingly, sacrificially, and generously. The True and Greater Bread from Heaven God told Israel to gather a certain quota every day, and Moses said, This is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. Exodus 16, 4 and 15. Every day God gave them bread, looking forward to when Jesus would teach us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Matthew 6, 11. Each day they trusted God to provide, and each day we trust God to provide. But if we really want to appreciate the manna, we must look beyond the physical to the spiritual. Jesus said, The people of Israel ate the manna in the wilderness, and they are dead. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. John 6, 49 and 51. The manna was wonderful, but all it did was give people more years of earthly life. In light of eternity, this is a drop in the bucket. Jesus is the true and greater bread from heaven. He provides eternal life and satisfies better than anything physical, be it food or wealth. David Platt said, When we truly come to Christ, our thirst is quenched by the fountain of life and our hunger is filled with the bread of heaven. We discover that Jesus is the supreme source of satisfaction and we want nothing apart from him. We realize that he is better than all the pleasures, pursuits, and possessions of this world combined. As we trust in Christ, he transforms our tastes in such a way that we begin to love the things of God that we once hated, and we begin to hate the things of this world that we once loved. The gospel is financial. We have spent so much time discussing finances, let's be clear about the true and greater riches available to us. They also are not physical. They can't be touched, minted, or printed. The Bible explains the gospel using financial terms. Let's consider each term so we can better appreciate what Christ has done for us. Debt. Jesus told us to pray, Forgive us our debts, Matthew 6.12. He was not referring to anything financial, but spiritual. Our sin debt against God. Unlike the debt that we can pay off, this is a debt that we can't do anything about, no matter how hard we work, how much time we are given, and how wise we are financially. We have this debt whether we are rich, poor, young, or old. In the parable of the unforgiving servant, Matthew 18, 23-27 records, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. But, as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, 
Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. The man had a debt he was not able to pay. He fell to his knees, begged the master, and he forgave him the debt. The man represents us, and the desperation and fear his debt caused him represents the desperation and fear our sin debt should cause us. The master represents the Lord, and the compassion he felt for this man represents the compassion he feels towards sinners who cry out to him for mercy. What did the servant do to be forgiven for such a debt? He did nothing more than acknowledge his debt and humble himself. If a parent had a child who acted wickedly, and the child came to the parent humble and broken, wouldn't the parent quickly forgive and embrace the child like the father in the parable of the prodigal son, who represents God, embraced his son? Luke 15.20 says, When he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. This is how our Heavenly Father wants to forgive us. Redeem. To redeem means to buy back from debt. A redeemer is the one who pays someone else's debt. Jesus is the redeemer of every believer. Jesus gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Titus 2.14 You are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. 1 Peter 1.18-19 and 19. Ransom The ransom is the payment the Redeemer makes to deliver someone from the consequences of their debt. But we can't redeem ourselves or anyone else because the ransom price is too high. No one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough so that they should live on forever and not see decay. Their tombs will remain their houses forever, their dwellings for endless generations. Though they had named lands after themselves, people, despite their wealth, do not endure. They are like the beasts that perish. Psalm 49, 7-9, and verses 11 and 12. People might have been rich enough to have locations named after them, but the grave is where they will remain because no amount of wealth can keep us from death. This is the fate of those who trust in themselves and of their followers who approve their sayings, but God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to himself. Psalm 49, 13, and 15. They trust in themselves, but the psalmist trusted in the Lord. We can't redeem anyone, but God will redeem through Jesus because he can pay the ransom price. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, Matthew 20, 28. Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all, 1 Timothy 2, 6. Pay. If we owe money, it would be unjust if the debt was never paid. A perfectly just God can't forgive a debt that is unpaid. Jesus paid the debt when he died on the cross and took the punishment that our sins deserve. This allows God to remain just because our sins are punished. The Greek word translated pay is teleo, the same word used in these passages. Does your teacher not pay teleo the temple tax? Matthew 17, 24. Because of this, you also pay teleo taxes. Romans 13, 6. Teleo has been found written on receipts for taxes. 
meaning paid in full. When Jesus was on the cross, moments before his death, he said, It is finished, to leo, and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. John 19.30 It is as though Jesus said, I have paid your debt in full, so you can be forgiven. Impute Impute is an accounting term that refers to moving assets from one side of a ledger to the other. Blessed is the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Romans 4.6 God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. 2 Corinthians 5.19 Our righteousness is imputed to Christ's account, and his righteousness is imputed to our account. This is classic double imputation. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Jesus' work and our condition At the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he returned to his hometown of Nazareth. He visited the synagogue, was given the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Luke 4.18 This describes both the beautiful work of the Messiah, preach the gospel to the poor, and the wretched state of unregenerate sinners, brokenhearted, captive, blind, and oppressed. Because preaching the gospel to the poor is listed first, it is tempting to think that is Jesus' most important ministry. But Jesus was anointed to preach the gospel to the poor, and the rest of the verse describes what the gospel does for us. We are brokenhearted over the consequences of our sins, and Jesus is near to those who have a broken heart, Psalm 34, 18. We are captives to sin, but Jesus gives us liberty. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. John 8, 34 and 36. We are blind spiritually, but we receive sight. Jesus said, seeing they do not see, but blessed are your eyes, for they see. Matthew 13, 13 and 16. We are oppressed by the consequences of sin, but the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed. Psalm 9.9 Spiritually poor The reason we must be redeemed, need Christ's righteousness imputed to our accounts, have debt, and require a ransom is simply put because we are poor. If that were not the case, we would pay our debt and we would not need a redeemer to ransom us. The Greek word translated poor means reduced to beggary, lowly, afflicted, helpless, powerless, lacking in anything. This is not slight poverty, this is complete poverty, of which Scripture provides a good example. At his gate was laid a poor, this is the same word for poverty, man named Lazarus, covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor, the same word for poverty, man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Luke 16, 20 through 22. This is poor. I don't know if there's a more pitiful description of an individual in Scripture. The way this beggar looked physically is the way we look spiritually. Isaiah 64, 6 says, All our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. 
polluted garments aren't worth much. Learning this is our spiritual condition is discouraging until we remember Jesus was anointed to preach the gospel to the poor. Recognizing our spiritual poverty. Jesus didn't say he was anointed to preach the gospel to everyone. He said, to the poor. This doesn't mean some are poor and others are rich. Instead, everyone is poor, but only some people recognize it. Jesus taught a parable contrasting two men. One thought he was righteous, spiritually rich, but the other knew he was a sinner, spiritually poor. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Luke 18, 9-14 The great paradox is this. People who think they are spiritually rich and deserving of heaven are the farthest from it. People who know they are spiritually poor and undeserving of heaven obtain it through faith in Christ. In Matthew 5, 3, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How can the poor be blessed, and why would the kingdom of heaven belong to them? They are blessed because they know they are spiritually poor, can't trust their own righteousness, need the gospel, and have nothing with which they could purchase their salvation. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them because they will put their faith in Christ to receive his righteousness and have him pay their debt. They are the ones of whom God said, On this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit. Isaiah 66, 2. Jesus made a similar point when he blessed the children who came to him. Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Luke 18, 16, and 17. Children are the premier example of spiritual poverty in that they have done nothing to earn salvation. They receive gifts freely, and salvation is a gift to receive freely. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 6.23. Jonathan Edwards said, A true Christian is poor in spirit, and more like a little child, and more disposed to a universal lowliness of behavior. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the account with the rich young ruler follows Jesus blessing the little children. This presents a fitting contrast because he was the opposite of a little child. It is as though God says, Be like these children and not like this man. The ruler said, All the commandments I have kept from my youth. Luke 18.21 Jesus let him walk away because he preaches the gospel to the poor, and this man thought he was as spiritually rich as he was physically rich. Imagine a conversation between an evangelist and a man like the rich young ruler. Evangelist, Jesus died for your sins. Man convinced he's spiritually rich. What sins? I don't have any. Evangelist, we are all sinners, but God loves you and is willing to give you his son's righteousness by grace through faith. Man convinced he's spiritually rich. 
No, God loves me because I'm such a good person, and that's also why I don't need Jesus' righteousness. In contrast, picture the same conversation with a man who knows he's spiritually poor. Evangelist, Jesus died for your sins. Sinner, why would he do that for me? Evangelist, because he loves you and is willing to give you his son's righteousness by grace through faith. Sinner, that's amazing. I am so thankful he would do this for someone like me. Rich in Christ, did you know the Bible speaks of two births and two deaths? The first birth is when we are born physically. The second birth is when we are born spiritually. Jesus told Nicodemus, Assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3.3, see also John 1.13, 1 Peter 1.23, and 1 John 3.9. The first death is when we die physically, which is experienced by believers and unbelievers alike. The second death is experienced only by unbelievers when they are cast into the lake of fire, which we commonly call hell. Revelation 2.11, 20 verse 6, 20 verse 14, and 21 8. Unbelievers die physically, and then they die eternally. But if you experience the second birth, you won't experience the second death. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. Revelation 20 verse 6. Proverbs 11.4 says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. This refers to the second death, and no amount of earthly wealth can spare us from it. Only righteousness, which we receive from Christ, can deliver us. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8.9 this is another example of double imputation. Our spiritual poverty is imputed to Christ, and his spiritual riches are imputed to us. I want to conclude with these truths because meditating on them is the best way to be a good financial steward. As we think about what Christ has done for us, how rich we are in him, and the eternal blessings that await us, how can we not be motivated to apply the principles in the previous chapters? Just as the greatest giving is motivated, not by obligation but by worship, so too does the greatest financial stewardship flow not from duty but from hearts of love and thankfulness. The Prayers for You As I wrote this book, I prayed for everyone who would read it. I will continue to pray for every reader, including you, for years to come. But the greatest encouragement you could possibly receive is knowing that Jesus is making intercession for you. Romans 8.34 you can be sure his intercession includes the way we handle our finances because it is such an important stewardship. Nobody wants you to be able to manage your finances well more than Jesus himself. And if you are a Christian, then be greatly encouraged that the power of the gospel is at work in your life enabling you to do so.